Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Utah Women's Giving Circle is presenting a series of events this month and next titled Resilience 2020. From Susan B. Anthony to RBG, the History, Resilience, and Call to Community. And the first event is this week. Catherine Kitterman and Tiffany Green from Better Days 2020 will discuss the history of women reinventing the world. They'll paint the historical backdrop of how women have led forward in times of difficulty, coming together to create the cultural movements that shape our state, nation, and world for the better. And uh, Catherine Kitterman and Tiffany Green will be with us on the program today. Catherine Kitterman is the historical director for Buddy Today's 2020. She's co-author of Champions of Change, 25 Women Who Made History and Thinking Women, a Timeline of Suffrage in Utah. She is a Ph.D. candidate at American University in Washington, D.C., where she's worked to bring history to life at the Smithsonian, the Holocaust Memorial Museum, and the Woodrow Wilson House. Catherine Kitterman, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks. Appreciate you being with us today. Tiffany Green is a historical research consultant for Better Days 2020, where she's specifically worked to uncover the history of the rural suffrage movement in Utah. She graduated as a service learning scholar from the uh, University of Utah with a bachelor's degree in secondary education with a history emphasis. Tiffany Green, welcome. Uh, uh, Tiffany Green, are you with us? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Yeah, thank you. Great, sounds good. All right, thanks for having me. All right, uh, let's see, the the event uh, is coming up on Thursday. It's at uh, noon, and you can register by going uh, to uh, utahwomensgivingcircle.com and clicking on events. You can also get to it from Better Days 2020 uh, website uh, as well. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, I want to ask you to turn it, I'll start with Catherine Kitterman with this. Uh, of course, professional interest in, in women's history, women, history of suffrage, etc. But uh, is there a personal interest uh, here as well? Did you did you have an interest in this, I don't know, growing up? Or how did you get into the, to, to this? Yeah, I've always been interested in history. I think one of the, the through lines in my education and the choices I've made in my career is that I just want to know how we got to be where we're at today, uh, what choices were made, what inflection points happened in history that 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 made things end up the way that they are. And learning about the past, um, as we all know, a lot of the names and the stories that we hear are the same stories of men who made things happen. And that's not necessarily to say that there weren't other people who made history. Those stories have been more hidden in the past. And so I think it's, a, it's an interesting question to me to find out who really was working in my own community, who was making a difference in the place where I live to make things better. And I think as we've uncovered and dug into some of those stories at Better Days 2020 over the past three years, it's been really fulfilling and interesting for me just as a human being to know the people who shaped my community and to recognize that my experiences in my life have been shaped by so many more people than I have ever known about before. Tiffany Green, same question. Uh, how did you get into this this history? What is there personal interest? Sure, I'm I'm like Catherine. I've always been interested in history, and and back in college, I I graduated in, with a degree in history. The suffrage movement specifically hasn't ever um, been like a, an area of emphasis for me until I got uh, working with Better Days 2020. But I've always been. I'd like to consider myself a, a gatherer of stories, right? Like I love, I love meeting new people and, and listening to their stories and finding out where they came from and how they got to where they are and, and how our lives 
um, connect and how we're the same and how we're different. <clears throat> and so uh, working with Better Days 2020 and finding out the, the really incredible role that Utah women played in the suffrage movement um, has really been important to me as a lifelong Utah. It's not something that I was ever taught in school. And so it's been really meaningful for me to find these new stories of these women, like Catherine said, who have influenced where I have grown up and love to live. And it's added a depth of pride to, to being a Utah for me. So Catherine Kitterman, this, uh, this influence, um, I, th- I think maybe we don't realize it's there. Right. And I, I, what's the value and what's the value to you in uncovering that? It's making it explicit that, yes, these these specific women have influenced you and me. Absolutely. And like you say, that that influence isn't always visible. When we look at the, the visual language of commemoration, uh, we've been talking about that a lot this year in America. Right. But the, the statues, the street names, the buildings, the, you know, the, the environment that we inhabit physically there's a lot of names of men, and there's not very many names or celebrations or recognitions of women. And that's really important to me because as a culture, what we, what we represent publicly says something about what we value. And I think it's important that all of us, not just kids, but especially for kids growing up, that you learn about men and women who have made a difference in your community and people of all communities and, and racial and ethnic backgrounds. The thing is, for me... I feel like I have a way to make a difference as a citizen when I learn more about the stories of other people who have seen issues that they wanted to change and dug in and done something about that. And so as we learn about women who fought for the right to vote, for access to equal education, for more access to the arts for Utahns and so many other issues, that inspires me to look around my community and to say, what could I make a difference on? What would I like to see change for the better? And how can I use my voice to make that happen? So it could be inspiring in that way and motivating. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Tiffany Green. I um, I know that you um, you've, uh, as we said in your bio, worked to uncover the history of the rural suffrage movement. This is uh, again, this is this is not visible. I think right. We don't not a lot of statues of <laughs> of women in these rural areas either. Yes, I'm I'm fairly certain there's probably not any rural suffrage statues in the state of Utah. There's probably not any in in our country. But these rural women, there were thousands of them between, you know, 1870 and and the turn of the 1900s there that were actively uh, engaged in their their communities and in the political process, uh, specifically in getting the right to vote reinstated after they had the right to vote, it was then taken away. And then they really organized and had this grassroots effort to get an equal suffrage clause put back into our state constitution when we became a state uh, in 1896. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, and we'll get into some of this history and some of the, the fascinating stories. Uh, you know, stories are, are really the, the hook that we learn the history on, aren't they? Um, I want to ask each of you, before we jump into uh, talking about some of these very, very interesting uh, women, some, some very well-known, some not so well-known, um, so this series from the Utah Women's Giving Circle is uh, around the framework of resilience. And so the subtitle from Susan B. Anthony to RBG, The History, Resilience, and Call to Community. And so on Thursday at noon, uh, the two of you will be presenting, uh, I guess, considered the history. Um, uh, starting with Catherine Kitterman again, um, 
I wonder if you've thought about this, this uh, fitting this into this framework. This, and we we've been thinking a lot about this, of course, with COVID and everything going on, resilience in our lives. Um, I assume the, the 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 women from the suffrage movement and and other women that you study can can teach us about resilience. Absolutely, and you're right. I have been thinking about that a lot this year, uh, as history seems to repeat itself. One of the heroes that I look to in Utah history is Alice Kasai, who lived through World War II. She was a Japanese-American, and her husband was actually interned by the government, taken as a prisoner. And she was running her family and her life without him for two and a half years and led the movements to, to try to release prisoners um, who had been kept by the U.S. government and also then worked to build bridges of peace and understanding. And so as I've thought about her a lot this year, someone living in circumstances that she didn't choose, uh, that were overwhelming, or she feared for the safety of loved ones, um, her story has been influential and inspirational to me, thinking about the strength and the determination that people like her had to keep pushing forward and to keep believing in the goodness of our fellow countrymen and, and to work towards a better future together. I guess maybe put put our uh, troubles in perspective as well, right? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Tiffany Green, same question to you. Uh, you know, this framework of resilience, um, I, I assume that some of the women you've studied have maybe taught you lessons about resilience. Absolutely, right? I think any time we learn uh, from people of the past, we'll, we'll easily come to see that we are not alone in our hardships today, that, that people have always experienced things that have been um, very difficult for them, right? And um, these women of Utah across across the board, I think, have shown that when life gets hard, we roll up our sleeves and we get to work and that we find solutions, we find ways forward, we, we deal with the cards that we've been given and we work for solutions within those parameters. And sometimes those parameters are really stacked against us. Like we don't have a lot of uh, political power or political clout. Our voices are not automatically considered. Um, and so these Utah women that Better Days 2020 has highlighted, and there's, there's lots of them on our website, um, these women have, have made their voices heard even when they weren't automatically considered from the get-go. I uh, understand um, that at your presentation for the Women's Giving Circle, you'll, you'll be talking about, we talked earlier about statues, memorials, uh, you'll be talking about a new memorial on the state capitol grounds. Uh, Catherine Kitterman, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this. Yes, I'm very excited about this new sculpture. Um, Better Days 2020 gifted it to the state of Utah back in August, and it's titled A Path Forward, as you mentioned. The artists are Kelsey Harrison and Jason Manley, and this commemorates the 19th, excuse me, the 19th Amendment centennial. So August was the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which extended the right to vote to many women across the country. But what I love about this memorial is that it talks specifically about Utah women's role and that it honors the expansions of voting rights that took place starting in 1870, back when Utah women cast their first votes, and going all the way up through the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and on to today. The memorial honors the gradual expansions and the long slog um, that was the fight for suffrage um, for women and especially people of color moving forward over generations and across the country. But it especially grounds it in Utah history because Utah women had an especially unique leading role in that movement. 
And I, I love what the sculpture does and the, the words that are there, the symbolism. It's a very, very moving experience to, to walk through that on the grounds of the state capitol complex. It's there outside of Council Hall, which is the building where Utah women first cast their votes 150 years ago. Yeah, that's uh, that, that is exciting. Um, I wonder you uh, you mentioned uh, Utah's Utah women's unique role. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that because Utah Utah does does have some unique aspects uh, when we fit it into the overall uh, suffrage movement or the, the overall movement for voting rights. We sure do, and and it is an interesting fact that many Utahns may not be aware of, which is that Utah women were actually the first in the United States to cast their ballots under an equal suffrage law. So that means in 1870, both in February and in August, when Utah women cast their votes in elections, they were the first to do so under laws that gave them the same voting rights as men. There had been a couple of women in a couple of other places who had had opportunities to vote on a limited circumstance. Um, But this was really the first time that women citizens as a whole were able to exercise the franchise and have a voice in government. That didn't mean that all women were included. There were discriminatory laws around citizenship, for example, that kept huge categories out of the electorate such as Native American women, Indigenous women, other people of color. But this was an important step forward because it was the first place where women were actually exercising those voting rights on a large scale. And then, as Tiffany has mentioned, um, Utah women's voting rights got caught up in the controversy over polygamy. Um, So Utah women voted for 17 years before Congress actually disenfranchised them. But there was a long process there of women casting their ballots, having a say in the political process, and of everybody else around the country really looking to see how that would play out on the ground. So later on, when women regained suffrage, Utah became a state. And as the national movement was pushing for a constitutional amendment, women from Utah could be called to testify in Congress. For example, Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, as she was serving in the state Senate, went to Washington, D.C. to testify and say that none of the unpleasant results that had been predicted had occurred. Basically, Utah women's experience could show that the sky didn't fall in when women had a voice in politics, that when women went to the polls, they could still take care of their families, that that they didn't become like men. You know, all of these anti-suffrage arguments that had been dredged up, Utah women's experience was held up to show that women actually had a bettering influence on society when they were part of the decisions about government and public policy. So it's a really unique story, and I think many Utahns are still unaware of that interesting aspect of our history. Uh, what uh, maybe could uh, elucidate a little more? You'd mentioned a couple of the, the arguments on either side. First of all, what were the what were the argu- the main arguments ag- against uh, s- suffrage? You, you mentioned that uh, women would be would I guess become just more like men. You'd you'd lose the the, the difference. What were the, some of the other um, arguments? Yeah, many people thought that women weren't smart enough to vote, that they really, you know, honestly thought that women's brain capacity was smaller, that they weren't educated enough to have a have an informed say in political affairs. Uh, they also thought that many women didn't want to vote. So many people argued that women didn't want to be concerned with those affairs outside the home, that they were perfectly happy and content just focusing on their homes and families. And so that was another thing that Utah women really, really pushed back against in their arguments for suffrage saying that they wanted to have a role in shaping the future of their state, just like any other citizen. Um, another argument that a lot of people made in the, in the 1800s was that women were already represented by their husbands anyway, and so it didn't really matter if they had a say. But Utah women talked specifically about what it meant to them as United States citizens to exercise that responsibility, to make an informed choice, to act independently and in choosing what they thought would be the best path forward for the state, and they talked about the, the ownership and the pride that gave them in their local communities. 
that's another really important aspect they were able to overturn. And then finally, one last argument that was bandied about a lot, especially in Utah with, with fears and concerns over polygamy, was that women were voting only the way that their husbands told them to. That was something that uh, Utah women bristled at. They didn't want to be seen as somebody else's robots or pawns. They wanted to be seen as independent contributors to political culture. Hmm. What were the main arguments in favor? Uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's an injustice there if, <laughs> if whole segments of the society uh, don't have the franchise. But what were the, what was, what were the practical arguments? What, what, what did they see as positives that would happen if the women got the vote? Yeah, that's a great question. And as you say, today it seems almost ridiculous to us to say that huge groups of our society shouldn't have a voice in government. But you have to remember that back when the Constitution was ratified for the United States, it allowed states to set voter qualifications. And so nowhere else before Utah women started voting in 1870 were women actually able to participate in that. It was a franchise had been largely only granted to white men because people thought they're more educated, they have more wealth, they have more of a stake in society. And so one of the arguments that Utah women used was that many of them were heads of households and paying taxes. So they went back to those old Revolutionary War arguments, right, that taxation without representation was tyranny. That was one of the big themes. They also talked about women's and men's natural equality. Um, Again, something that I think we see as more of a given in our society today than was the case 150 years ago or 100 years ago. They talked about how women and men shared the responsibilities for shaping a future just as they shared responsibilities in the home and family. There were so many other reasons why women said that they should vote, for example, that they would better the choices that were made in public policy, that they would be more attuned to issues like education or art or community investments that would pay benefits over a long period of time. Some of those played out and some of those didn't, but the most basic argument was one of human rights, that as citizens of the Republic, as people who had to live under laws that were created by government, women as citizens should have a say in who was going to be the ones making those laws. Uh, Tiffany Green, um, you, I was watching a presentation with uh, with you and Catherine Kitterman uh, for the Utah State Historical Society. Uh, you can uh, Google that up. It's a very interesting. Um, you were talking about how, you know, there, there's stereotypes, as there are today, there were stereotypes, in, especially in rural Utah, um, of, of the way people saw women's roles. But even the 19th century, those... That didn't tell the whole story, right? Right, exactly. Um, yeah, in, in that talk, I mentioned that when we think of the 1800s, a woman in rural Utah, right, a, a farm farmer's wife, we think of very, <laughs> there's the stereotype you think of, that she was busy raising her family and tending to the farm life, um, making clothes, things like that. And it's true that they had those responsibilities. There were women in rural Utah who had to do all of those things, but they also had so many other roles to play, and there was such a depth to who they were um, that we don't often consider. These women were politically active in their communities. They, like Catherine mentioned, lots of them were heads of households. They were paying taxes. They were single-handedly in charge of their entire Um, family life from money coming, you know, money or barter systems coming in to providing for food and shelter for their children and for oftentimes other, other, you know, sister wives, children. Um, And many of them were 
small business owners themselves. Um, and, and that's the depth of that character is not often considered when we think of rural Utah women in the 1800s. Mm. By the way, I want to go to break, and when we come back, I want to jump into talking about some specific women, fascinating women that uh, you talked about in this presentation, of course, Better Days uh, 2020. Uh, but Tiffany Green, uh, it's interesting to me, sometimes uh, in this, this presentation, um, there were some women that you had a lot on, uh, you know, background, and others you you maybe had a one or two newspaper articles. Um, fascinating process to me, this historical process of, uh, you know, of finding these historical figures and then parsing as much as you can out of sometimes very sparse material. Yes, it's, it's the subject matter of rural Utah women. A, a lot of times there's not a lot of subjects or not a lot of uh, primary sources to go off of. Um, and I think that that just speaks to the larger issue of, of women in history. Generally, it's hard to find their stories, and it takes a lot of digging and a lot of uncovering to find out who they were. Um, but even when we're able to just find little tidbits of information, I think that we are able to understand on a much more deeper level who these women were. So did you spend a lot of time in the, I, I guess, newspapers to be one uh, <laughs> uh, place? These small-town small newspapers, they... Are the archives online now, or do you have to go out to these places? Um, luckily, the, the archives were are online. They, they don't have all of the small newspapers archived digitally, but many of them are, and thankfully so, because in the, the world of 2020, we are spending a lot of time in our homes and not able to go into other places to do archival research. So, yes, newspapers were an invaluable resource for me in uncovering these uh, rural women in Utah and in the suffrage movement. They had advertisements in their local papers as well as some reprints of speeches that they gave and um, other activities that they had. They would have parades and balls, uh, fundraising balls to support the Women's Suffrage Association in their local town and the Utah Territory one at large. So, yes. Newspapers were an invaluable resource for finding information about who these women were and what they did in their own communities, as well as what their communities thought about them individually and in their activism. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more uh, with uh, Catherine Kitterman and Tiffany Green. They're both with uh, Ut- uh, with Better Days 2020. And the two of them will be presenting the first event with the Utah Women's Giving Circles uh, series, Resilience 2020. And that event uh, is uh, titled The History of Women Reinventing the World. And it's on Thursday at noon. And uh, you can go to utahwomensgivingcircle.com and uh, then click on events. utahwomensgivingcircle.com, click on events. Or you can go to Better Days. Um, is it uh, betterdays2020.org uh, and click on their events and yeah. uh, get to that as well. Um, and uh, need to, it's free, but you need to register for its online event. So uh, that's an option for you on Thursday at noon. We're previewing that on the program today, and we'll have more following this break. UPR reporting is made possible in part by the Doreen and Maxim LaPlante Fund, LaPlante Fund for Health and Science Journalism. And support also comes from in Utah, working to slow the spread of coronavirus while supporting locally owned businesses, providing food, goods, and services safely in Utah. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. Hogar 
Crea, the story of a controversial Puerto Rican drug treatment program and the larger-than-life man who started it. That's this week on Latino USA. Coming up this morning at 11 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, this is Justin Edwards from USU Marketplace, inviting you to join us, Utah Public Radio, Cash Premier Training Center, and Jump the Moon Alt Studio for a drive-in movie night at the American West Heritage Center, Monday, October 19th, to celebrate National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Details at upr.org and awhc.org. Can't wait to see you there. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Utah Women's Giving uh, Utah Women's Giving Circle rather is presenting a series of events this month and next, titled Resilience 2020, from Susan B. Anthony to RBG. The History, Resilience, and Call to Community. And the first event is on Thursday at noon. Catherine Kitterman and Tiffany Green from Better Days 2020 are discussing the history of women reinventing the world. Uh, it's a free event, uh, online event, and uh, but you need to register so you can do that a couple different ways. You can go to utahwomensgivingcircle.com and click on events, or you can go to betterdays2020.org and click on the, their events tab and uh, register for this event Thursday at noon. Um, and Catherine Kitterman is historical director for Better Days 2020. Tiffany Green is a historical research consultant for Better Days uh, 2020. Before we jump into uh, very interesting specific uh, uh, histories of, of women, um, Catherine Kitterman, I, I want to loop back to something in your bio. Uh, you've worked at the, or worked for uh, the Holocaust Museum. Yeah, that was a long time ago now, but I, yeah. I was a student intern there under the senior historian. So I spent a summer um, learning about the museum's education process and digging into a couple research projects. And that's interesting. I've been to I've been through the, the museum, that museum. It's so impactful. Um, it <laughs> I came out thoroughly depressed, but uh, maybe that's the point. But but uh, but uh, you know, very much reaware, right, of, of of the history. You know, lest we forget. Um, so you were a student intern. That, that's um, and then I guess did you work for the Smithsonian as well. And uh, so I wonder if you talk a little bit about you know the impact of of history in this form museums. Absolutely. So one of the things that I love to do when I go on vacation is go to museums and learn learn something new about the place where I'm at or, or an interesting part of history that I haven't known about before. And um, history as a discipline requires a lot of digging. Um, as Tiffany was mentioning, going through archives, looking at newspapers, trying to track down descendants sometimes. Um, it can be a lonely process, a lonely endeavor. Um, but as we're uncovering new information in history that changes the way that we interpret the past, that, that adds to the cast of characters that we know about, of people who have done great things in history or terrible things in history, there's a, not a lot of ways that the general public gets to learn about that right as soon as historians discover it. And so museums and other educational programs and nonprofits are so important for that in, in helping this new research, the new information that we have about the past, be translated into something that connects to our daily lives, that, that people can walk through and visualize and kind of put themselves in the past or put themselves in other people's shoes to, to imagine what other people's experiences were like. And I think that's one of the, the key roles of, of public history, that is history that's um, 
aiming to educate, you know, regular people who may not want to pick up dusty history books or, or go to graduate school in history, but there's ways that we can learn about people's experiences in the past that can open our eyes and help us learn empathy for others and also help us to recognize patterns in the past that are still relevant and happening today. One thing that struck me so much in the Holocaust Museum, I don't know, I assume it's still there, uh, it's a while since I went, uh, the power of physical objects, right? And they had a, a giant uh, bin of shoes, I believe it was. Uh, Absolutely. And I think yeah. these, when, these were from you Holocaust. you need to visualize that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, it really helped me to visualize it. It was very impactful. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, we talk about the past being a foreign country, right, where people um, had different mindsets and different clothing and different different cultural habits. But I think one of the things that you gain from a museum exhibit, especially something like that in the Holocaust Museum, is we also remember that people have always been people, right? Um, we're not that different. And those those physical objects and exhibits and other programming like that can help to collapse the distance to help us empathize with people who stood in the places that we stand, but in the past. Mm. Tiffany Green, I guess, similar question. So museums is one avenue, one venue. Uh, you, um, you graduated with secondary ed, ed degree, history emphasis. Uh, so education is another venue, right, in the schools. And Better Days 2020 has developed educational materials, teaching kits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's an important avenue, right, to, to get this information out to the next generation. Of course, right? Like if we don't if we don't teach the the next generation, as you say, the what happened in our past, then uh, we're we're only one generation away from having those stories be completely forgotten. Um, if If people don't teach the young people about what happened to their ancestors and things that they did that were incredible and things that they did that we need to learn from from their mistakes, uh, we we lose those stories altogether, and that's where that's where you have historians who who love to dig and find these stories to bring them back into the present. But yes, Better Days 2020 has done an incredible job of putting together an educational curriculum that ties to state standards, so that educators today can take the all of the historical research that's been done on Utah's suffrage movement and their involvement in it nationally and locally, and teach it to our students so they know. They know names of Utah women who were leaders, as well as um, the story of how they influenced their communities. And it's important for for boys and for girls. You know, sometimes we think when we're teaching of women's history that, okay, we need our girls to see strong women leaders of the past so they know that they can. you can't be what you can't see. So we need those girls to see these women leaders so they can become them, which is absolutely true. And... We also need our young boys to see these strong women leaders and to see that um, in the past, women were also leaders and that it's great that we have both men and women leaders who can we can learn from and that can be examples for us of how to engage in complex issues. Uh, like Catherine was saying, people in the past are not static. And I think children especially, because lots of the pictures we show them are black and white, um, and it just seems like it's a pretty boring thing that happened in the past that doesn't have anything to do with them. And so part of Better Days curriculum is we had uh, Brooke Smart, who's a local illustrator, illustrate 50 Utah women in color. And each illustration tells this amazing story. And it's really engaging and it's really um, atten- it grabs your attention. 
And so when young people see a picture of Emmeline Wells or of Mayton Bimbu Perry, the color of the picture immediately draws them in and they want to learn more. And it helps them see people and women in the past as as full faceted humans with with lots of different emotions and lots of competing um, lots of competing things that, that they weren't just one person who had one one specific way that they saw everything that was very complicated and teaching kids how to see things in a complex way is really important in our education. I've been teasing this for a better part of an hour, so let's jump in. Um, Catherine Kitteman, uh, I wonder if you'd tell me about uh, Sarah Kimball. I want to talk about some of these specific remarkable uh, women. Again, uh, some of these I hadn't known about, learned about in this presentation that I've been referencing from the Utah State Historical Society. Uh, So Sarah Kimball. Sarah Kimball was a very interesting woman. So she uh, traveled west to Utah in the 1850s, like many other Mormon immigrants at the time. Uh, But she was the leader of the Relief Society, the LDS Women's Organization, in the 15th Ward, so a certain geographical area in downtown Salt Lake City, about where Vivint Arena stands now. As the longtime leader of this society, she she did a lot of things, and many many Latter-day Saints may know her history from a religious perspective, but one of her main goals was to elevate women politically, religiously, socially, and economically. She had a broad vision of what it would take to make women truly equal to men in society. And so she worked on advancing that goal in many different ways. For example, um, she oversaw construction of the first woman-owned building in Utah, the Relief Society Hall, where women met upstairs for their religious meetings, but they also had a store on the ground floor where they could make goods and sell them. She wanted to help uh, the women in her community become economically self-sufficient. That was one way that she did this. She also then especially pushed for political rights and suffrage. So right as the discussions were happening around whether or not women should be able to vote in Utah in late 1869, early 1870, Sarah Kimball led a meeting where women actually demanded the right to vote. Um, they didn't demand it publicly, and we can, we can talk later about why that may or may not have been. But she was clearly at the forefront of this idea that women needed to have a voice in society and a voice in government in order to advance their other concerns to to protect themselves legally, financially, socially. And we know that she said later on, about 30 years later, that she was reading Susan B. Anthony's newspaper at the time, which was called The Revolution. So she was influenced by Eastern suffrage leaders as well, but she also had her own strong ideas about women's equality. She worked um, both then as this Relief Society leader in a religious setting, as well as a civil setting. Um, she was the president of the Utah Women's Suffrage Association in the 1890s, helped host Susan B. Anthony and other national suffrage leaders, and was a strong voice for women's equality um, and, and the, the, the vision that she wanted to see fulfilled, where women could be on an equal plane with men professionally, legally, socially, and politically. Uh, and in all of those, right, including economically, that, that's a theme that runs through several of the women that uh, both of you have talked about here, or will talk about. Yeah. Uh, economic uh, equality, and, and we're, we're still battling that. Absolutely. As a teacher trying to support her family in the 1850s, she ran up against some of the same issues of equal pay that we're still working on today. Hmm. Um, so, Tiffany uh, Green, you you talked about this presentation. Uh, let, let's talk about Electa Wood Bullock. Uh, who? Uh, where was she, where, where was she? She was in a rural area, I know. Yeah, she she was in Provo, um, which in 1880s, 1890s was not as 
as urban as it is today, right? We had Salt Lake that was an urban center, but Provo was still a relatively small uh, town at the time. So, yeah, she was located in Utah County. She, like Sarah Kimball, she came to Utah as part of the the LDS church's migration here. Um, And she always had a very broad view of the role that women should play in society. Um, She never thought that just being the the home caregiver was the the best or the only role for a woman to play. She and her husband, Isaac, ran the Bullock Motel in Provo, so she was a hotel proprietor. She uh, paid taxes, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. That was one of her arguments for having uh, women's suffrage reinstated in Utah was that women were taxpayers, and that fact alone qualified them to political equality with men. Um, Electa did have a big family. Uh, She had children of her own and actually ended up taking care of some of her grandchildren after her daughter passed away unexpectedly. So she did fulfill lots of the different, uh, she wore the many hats that that women often wear, um, but she she definitely thought that the, the sphere of women's influence was very broad and very wide and needed to be, um, needed to, people needed to recognize that women were working and were contributing to the economy, to the education of their communities, um, to the cultural improvement of their communities, in addition to taking care of their own families. And um, she, like Sarah Kimball, she was in the Suffrage Association of Utah County. She was the president of that county association. And in in 1893, she actually went to Chicago as part of the Columbian World Fair and gave a speech to an international audience called Industrial Women, where she uh, laid out all of these things that I've been talking about, how women really are um, deserving of political and social and economic equality with men. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll learn about uh, some more extraordinary women from from this era. We're talking with um, Tiffany Green and uh, Catherine Kitterman from Better Days 2020. They'll be presenting the first event uh, from the Utah Women's Giving Circle series called Resilience 2020. And uh, their event is uh, called The History of Women Reinventing the World. And uh, it is on Thursday at noon. Thursday at noon, it's an online event, a virtual event, and you're definitely welcome. It's free, but uh, you need to register. A couple of ways you can do that. You can go to utahwomensgivingcircle.com, click on events, or you can go to betterdays2020.org and click on events there uh, to register Thursday at noon. We'll have more with uh, Catherine Kitterman and uh, Tiffany Green following this. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll search for La Dolce Vita in post-war Italy and take a side trip for some fun with Italian music for kids. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Vintage Italia, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Calling all artists, designers, bird, and native plant lovers. The deadline for the Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest has been extended. You now have until October 13th to submit your best design celebrating the beauty of Utah's native plants and the many wild birds that rely on them. 
Your vote will decide the winning design and it will be printed on an educational bookmark. For more details, go to upr.org and to submit, just send your design to katie.swain at usu.edu. And that deadline to send in your submissions is today. Send your submissions now to katie.swain at usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Catherine Kitterman and Tiffany Green. They're with uh, Better Days 2020, and they'll be presenting the first event in the Utah Women's Giving Circle series of events titled Resilience 2020. And that event is Thursday at noon. You can register uh, through utahwomensgivingcircle.com or betterdays2020.org. Um, so, Catherine Kitterman, this presentation I've been referencing for Utah State Historical Society, uh, this really struck me, something you said, that, uh, of course, Utah women had the vote, then it was taken away, and then they fought to get it back. But um, while they had the vote, uh, you say they came to see themselves differently. They, they, they saw themselves now as citizens. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yes. And this is one of the interesting things that was going on in the 19th century, especially after the Civil War. There was a big debate going on in the country about who was actually a citizen and what that meant. I think today we think of this like, of course, men and women are citizens of the United States, but that wasn't necessarily a meaning and a, and a reality that, that was clear to everybody at the time. Part of it was because there were expected duties and responsibilities of citizens, and many people at the time felt that women wouldn't be able to carry out those responsibilities. They argued that, for example, that women couldn't sit on a jury, couldn't serve in the military at the time, wouldn't be able to vote without neglecting their other family duties, and so therefore they weren't full citizens. But that's one of the questions that Utah women helped to answer. As they, as they voted, one of the things that they faced like I mentioned before, was, was a, a pushback against their voting rights, partially because of the controversy over polygamy. Uh, many people felt that women shouldn't be voting at all in the United States. And then as Utah women's vote didn't undermine the system of polygamy and didn't end that, like some outsiders had hoped, they started to argue that women's vote should then be taken away because if they weren't voting out polygamy, then they weren't voting correctly. Um, and so as this debate was happening for about 17 years in Congress, Women in Utah sent in petitions to federal leaders. They lobbied. They went to D.C. to talk to people, to testify before congressional committees, and to try to meet with the president and other elected officials to plead their case. But as they were doing so, they talked about the feelings that they had, again, about their community, about their belonging, about their important role in society, that because they were voting, they were making a contribution, and that they were exercising the duties of citizenship. And so they came to see themselves as more equal with men by exercising those political rights on an equal basis with men, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, another statement uh, you made in this presentation, um, you pointed out that suffrage was only one of the goals, uh, right? And that we, we'd come to see this in you know, suffrage movements, very important, um, but uh, Utah women uh, activists uh, had several goals. Suffrage was only one. Yes, and that's one of the, the things that when we highlight suffrage in the movement for voting rights, it's a very important part of this movement for women's rights. But if you think back, even, for example, the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention that many people talk about as one of the first women's rights conventions, that's not where the movement for women's rights began out of thin air, but it's one of the places we can point to for the beginning of the story. But working for women's voting rights was about one of about nine or ten other resolutions 
that women passed at the time, including equal access to the professions, equal access to education, uh, the legal rights to custody of their children, to control their own wages, to keep their wages and not have to give them to their husbands, those sorts of things. And so it's interesting that as women came to focus on the vote, they saw that as a tool for the way that they would use to affect policy change. They wanted to make a lot of changes to their situation, to, to realize a situation where they could be fully equal, but they realized that they needed to have a say in government. They needed to have elected officials feel responsible to them as voters in order to make those policy changes happen. And so that's why as many people came to focus on the, the movement for the vote, they saw that as a first step towards many other goals that they had for women's equality. So I want to learn about uh, some more remarkable women. Uh, so Tiffany Green, um, you, you talked about Delilah King Olson. Tell me, tell me about her. So she's from Fillmore, I think. She was from Fillmore, which is in Miller County. Um, similar to the women that we've talked about, you know, the, the curriculum vitae looks very similar for her. She was part of the Women's Suffrage Association in Miller County. She petitioned to get suffrage reinstated when we became a state. But I think the interesting part about Delilah's story um, kind of goes part and parcel with what Catherine was talking about, with women seeing themselves as citizens and as um, actively part of the process was she was, she ran for and won to be a, um, a, sorry, excuse me, she ran for and ran to be in a county office in Miller County in 1896. And that was the first year that women were allowed to hold public office, even though back in 1870 when women could vote in Utah, women citizens, uh, when when we got that right to vote reinstated with state constitution, it also had the addition of saying that women could hold public office. And so Delilah was part of this group of women who, at that very first year, we were they were ready to step into this work. And in city elections, in county elections, and also statewide, right, that was when Martha Hughes Cannon won for state senator, becoming the first female state senator in the nation. But Delilah was on this county level, and she was the Millard County recorder for two terms at the end of the, the 19th century there. And these women who had been in the suffrage movement and had really pushed for this right to vote and to enter into back into the political process, they kind of carved out this own new niche for women's work, for ways for women to be gainfully employed. Um, because with that suffrage clause in our Constitution, now they could be paid for public service. And there were over 140 women who held elected county offices in the first quarter century of our statehood. That 140 doesn't include women who held offices in towns as well as who held it at the state level. But um, I think that Delilah's story really highlights how ready these women were to step into that process. Electable that I talked about earlier, she also ran in that 1896 election for Utah County Treasurer, but she lost to another woman, Ellen Jakeman. So really, these, these Utah women were ready to step in and, and get, their, get their hands dirty and get to work in changing the public policy, like Catherine talked about, in, in making a difference for um, equal education, equal access to jobs, and equal pay for equal work. That was always, as you, as you look through the record, these women, these suffrage associations, and then later when they, they were in, like, Republican and Democratic uh, clubs, they really were advocating for those types of things that are still very relevant today. It's hard to believe that, you know, 125 years ago, 
Delilah Olson and Electa Bullock were, were saying the same things that women are saying today. Catherine Kinnaman, we have about uh, three or four minutes left. I want to make sure we talk about Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, t- tell me about, about her. Yes, Elizabeth Taylor is one of my favorite heroes in Utah history. So she came to Utah in 1891. Uh, she was a black woman, and she and her husband, William, actually ran the Utah Plain Dealer, which was one of several newspapers for the black community out of Salt Lake City at the time. And as such, she was involved in politics. She was making connections and building building bridges in the community. Uh, William, her husband, actually ran for the state Senate in that same election that Martha Hughes Cannon won. Um, so, so William and Elizabeth were very involved in politics, but Elizabeth was important in her own right because she was an organizer of women. In those early years of Utah statehood, you could see her leading the Republican women's, excuse me, colored women's Republican club. That was the term they used at the time. And so she was going door to door to canvas for votes to, to support Republican Party candidates. She was holding rallies. You can see her being reimbursed for her expenses for renting a hall, for holding meetings to kind of get out the vote. And she was going around on Election Day to encourage black women and men to vote. One of the things that we talked about earlier was we mentioned that there was some discriminatory language in U.S. citizenship laws and other things that prevented women from voting as citizens. And there weren't laws on the books that specifically prevented black women from voting in Utah in those early years of statehood. But we do know that they were running up against some social difficulties. For example, one of these meetings that Elizabeth was at, they said, you know, you've got to pay attention and watch out if the registrars tell you that black women can't vote. That's not true. So we know this means that there was some level of social discrimination or just barriers that made it harder for women to register and vote if they were women of color in Utah in those early years. And Elizabeth is one of those people who was involved in actively pushing and helping to make sure that the women and the men in her community would be able to have a say. She later also went on to found another foundation, another club that brought women together from across the West to work for professional and educational uplift for their community, to hold charitable events and raise money for an old folks' home, this sort of thing. So Elizabeth was a leader and an instigator in the community, both through the newspaper, through black churches, and then especially through her political organizing. Very interesting. I would just have a, oh, about a minute and a half. Um, uh, maybe put this in. This is an example, uh, Tiffany Green, of uh, one of these women, uh, Margaret Salmon, I'm talking about, um, who not much is known. You I, you found an article or two, I think, from, from Colville? Yeah, there, there wasn't much, what, wasn't much there, right? Um, but M- Maggie found Salmon, she was a small business owner and a suffragist and a community organizer. Um, in different chapters of her life that we could see from these newspaper articles, we could see these different sides of her story come to life. Um, she owned a millinery shop up in Colville, and during the, the height of the suffrage movement in the 1890s here, she was part of the um, Summit County Women's Suffrage Association. Uh, then moving forward, you know, after statehood, back uh, into the 1900s there, um, she was a community organizer in World War One where she helped uh, for war bomb drives and things like that. And even though we don't know a lot about Maggie, um, even pictures were hard to come by, she, she kind of represents the, the, the everyday women that were, were part of this suffrage movement and this community involvement. And even though we may not know a lot about her, her story still matters. And, and the stories of thousands of women like her, when taken together, really build this rich history that women in Utah get involved to to make things happen in their communities. 
Well, we're uh, out of time. We'll have to uh, to leave it there. Uh, very interesting history, and you'll hear more of this uh, if you're able to attend this uh, online event, which is uh, sponsored by the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a series of events called Resilience 2020. Uh, the first one up will feature uh, Catherine Kitteman and Tiffany Green from Better Days 2020. They'll be discussing the history of women reinventing the world. And a couple of ways you can get to this. It's free, but you do have to register. Um, so you can go to utahwomensgivingcircle.com and click on their events, or betterdays2020.org and click on uh, their events. Um, Catherine Ketterman from uh, Better Days 2020, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And Tiffany Green, also from uh, Better Days 2020, thank you to you. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Uh, And uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening today. Jane Goodall has seen chimpanzees stop at a roaring waterfall and bristle with excitement. You can't help feeling that if they had a language like ours, that that would turn into some kind of animistic religion like worship of the elements. Do chimpanzees have spiritual experiences? Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.